You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio. You are with Marie here on Counterculture, and it's Counterculture on the road, on tour. Live from the Papalopolis. Live from the Papalopolis. Welcome, mate. New Zealand's Florida. Yeah, I know. We're very excited. Very excited. This is really exciting. We're actually doing this together in the same place. We're sitting here. There is a table strewn with newspaper. Yeah. There's a little bit of mixing that we've got to be careful. Yeah, I know. Is that your story? No, that's my story. But we've got a lot to talk about, as always. This week, we thought we would kick it off um, with the science in the school curriculum for level one. There's contention around this. It gets announced in terms of the science curriculum, and there's great concerns that, of course, uh, things like biology, chemistry, and physics don't even seem to appear in the new level one curriculum for science, let alone a view to what is going to happen in level two and level three. Is this a case of your theory, Marty, that they're actually... This is what they intended all along? It's not a bug, it's a feature. Well, the reason, you know, we were sort of talking about what to get into first, the the logical thing to get into first is the not-fit-for-purpose education system because, you know, we're going to be talking about gangs. They've been in the news a lot. We're going to be talking about various things that are less likely in a well-educated population that's functionally literate and able to form a cogent argument against crap. I don't know about you, but what I'm seeing with this, there's a huge amount of debate. I have to admit, even for those who are most ardent towards being aligned with the teaching ideologies currently coming out of the ministry, some of them are even starting to go, not so much. Well, I've been really heartened to see that there are some teachers starting to write columns, yeah. This is Dr. Andrew Rogers. He's the head of chemistry at St. Peter's College in Auckland. I I read read that whole quote on... um, on the political panel. Good on him, I'll say it again, good on him for, for speaking out. And people are starting to notice their kids' mm. education being full of stuff that they're scratching their heads about. Yeah. And a lot of it has been replaced. It's, again, where do you draw the line between facts and science and theory? A lot religion. Of, and religion. Yeah, like, there's a new trend for sticking in animist religion into uh, science and then absolutely shouting down and threatening the jobs of anyone who disagrees with you, right? The listener 10, you know, who said that, well, Matauranga um, Māori oh, yes. is an interesting part of our national heritage, but it ain't science. Yeah, it isn't science. So this, I think, is going to be a really interesting debate and it's going to continue to be a debate particularly as more and more state schools are opting out of providing level one to their students they're doing something alternative now the concern with this of course is this is now proposed for the curriculum for next year will we see this go on the bonfire if there is a change of government number one and number two If they don't put it on the bonfire, if there is a change of government, assuming that National Act and potentially another coalition partner get across the line, how on earth are they going to modify this to make this even useful for our kids? Yeah, I mean, there's a bit there that you, and so this is a good thing about us being live together. Um, I noticed stuff you haven't highlighted (laughs) on this one, which I highlighted, which was of more concern. This is from Andrew Rogers, Dr. Andrew Rogers, the head of chemistry at St. Peter's College in Auckland, chairman of Science Olympia New Zealand. Of more concern, those who worked on the Level 1 science standards did so without any idea of what the Level 2 or Level 3 programs would look like, as no curriculum existed. Many of the the experienced classroom specialists with an understanding of international best practice were sidelined or, at best, managed. I suspect they were seen as difficult to work with because their reasoning didn't support the ministry's narrative. That's horrifying here, isn't it? It is horrifying. And having speaking to somebody who's currently embarking in a science degree at the moment uh, as an adult student, they showed me a paper that they did in their first semester, and it's called Science Sustainability. I was struggling to find any science in it whatsoever. The entire paper was essentially full of ideology. They sent it across to me, and it was all around... I mean, the most sciencey thing in there was uh, vague... Well, not vague, very overt references to climate change, but from what I can see from the surface, the entire paper, which is compulsory for every single student who is doing a science degree at Massey University to undertake, was essentially an indoctrination propaganda paper. This is this is the ideology in the lev- in the channel of thinking that we want you to be in in this degree. Deviate from this, and you will fail. And it's only pass fail. It's not even graded. It's mm. only pass fail. 
and you have to pass it in order to get your science degree. So the person that sent this to me said, look, I think you might be interested in this with what you talk about. And then they followed it up with, please don't let them know who I am because I don't want them, you know. And they literally had to lie through their teeth in the entire paper in order just to get that pass mark to progress forward. Yeah, I mean, well, is that the level of education that we've come to? And well, I did. I did one paper towards a uh, master's in counselling, and I got told quite a few times, "You just got to tell them what what they want to hear." I find as I get older, there's less and less memory space to handle lying, and it just it's hard enough to arrive at the truth that will guide you through life without fluffing it with bullshit. Mm. Absolutely. So it is quite concerning. So I think it is very much watch the space if you're concerned about what's going on uh, with your kids or stuff that you're seeing in your kids' education. Drop us a line in inbox at, at realitycheck.radio and let us know what's going on. We'd love to hear what's happening uh, at your schools. I know that there was an interview, Leighton Smith did an interview with the principal of Rangitoto College. Do you listen yep, to that? I, yep. I caught that. I always listened to Leighton Smith. Yeah, and there were some some of the feedback he received was, oh, he, he didn't go far enough. Well, I actually thought he was exceptionally brave talking about the new program, uh, Rangitoto College, for those who aren't aware, are, is the largest high school in New Zealand. It's massive. And he has now withdrawn from the NCA Level 1 program and they're going their own way, like many schools in Auckland now are. He had to be extremely measured. He is still a principal at a very large school. So, I mean, he has got people within the ministry that will be looking at him very closely. So I thought the fact that he was able to come out on a program like that and discuss it yeah, well, really it's, it's a pink pill concept where if you yeah. just hit people too hard with too much, they'll just go, man, it's it's, it's our Matrix movie analogy. You know, this might not be a real state, but yeah. I'm happy with it. And, you know, giving back to the guys, uh, the um, head of chemistry at St. Peter's, you know, saying, well, the, the classroom specialists got, and you've people who are science specialists were seen as difficult to work with because their reasoning didn't support the ministry's narrative. Now, it doesn't go on to say that. But in the Herald on Sunday's editorial, they go on to tell you what the ministry's narrative is. And the ministry wants uh, Matauranga Māori, that is the accumulated traditional knowledge of Māori, to sit at the heart of the learning areas. There is nothing wrong with that. But if Matauranga Māori is at the heart, then physics, chemistry, and biology must remain front of mind. I don't know how you can do those two things at the same time. Well, it's an oxymoron, really, isn't it? Putting moron into oxymoron. Yeah, it is, but I mean, because there's nothing wrong with Mataranga Māori. If you were taking Māori at school as a subject, even if you were taking um, history in the history curriculum and social studies in the social studies curriculum, there's a lot of learning with Mataranga Māori in terms of an essence and a way of being that I think people would find really important, just as those who follow and, and read about Native American culture or any other culture around the world. There are ways of knowing. Maybe that they I need to balance it up by teaching kids that the moon's made out of cheese. <laughs> But not in the science curriculum. Well, you know, at one point it was. It was, yeah. Are we going back to the days where somebody who was actually wanting to advocate for real science will end up like Galileo Galilei and thrown in a tower because, you know, they're putting out there some scientific fact, but that does, you know, that does not fit with the current paradigm of the day. It, it really begs belief. Well, you know, a, a theme of this show is going to be the proclivity of the people pushing all of this stuff to lie. And they lie because I think, well, you know, I mean, that's a that's a very colonizing way to look at, at reality. What we're doing with this is good. So, you know, whether or not it's a lie, whether or not we're crushing dissent and, and whether or not we're paying off the media so they don't give the other side of the story. I mean, where are we going? I'm doing this, you know, with my hands together, looking up at the sky uh, for divine inspiration, as dear leader used to. You know, we're going somewhere good. So I think most Kiwis understand that you've got to lie your ass off. Maybe not. Maybe not. Moving on to Andrea Vance, because this is all sort of tied in. And I had a look yesterday at her column and I sat down and her headline was, is could the Treaty of Waitangi become a casualty of populism? And there was certainly a theme around 
um, nationalism and populism that popped up amongst a number of the stories. Is populism like it's a dirty word? Oh, I mean, you know, they're going to I mean, say... Democracy's populism. I was about to say they'll say that this will be threatening our democracy next. So she starts with, could the Treaty of Waitangi become the next casualty of populism? Actors campaigning for the referendum on co-governance, the shared model of decision-making that sees the Crown and Iwi partners having equal seats at the table. The party has not defined the question it wishes the voting public to answer, but has established a position it wants to rewrite the principles of the treaty into law in the next term in Parliament. In doing so, David Seymour is riding the intense wave of national populism that has surged across other Western democracies and given a distinctly Kiwi flavour. There's two things I want to cover with this. One is, yes, it is surging across democracies. In The Spectator, it was a last week or the week before, there was a piece about the number of uh, countries who are now starting to become more nationalistic and swing really back to the centre, to be brutally honest, because they've been so far out in the left paddock yeah. for so long. The Netherlands, interestingly enough, is looking like is going to be the next one to swing in that direction with the dissolving of their parliament in the last few days. There is definitely a shift. The last few remaining holdouts at the moment are particularly France and Germany, Venia and Denmark, but even then they cite that the current Prime Minister in Denmark, their immigration policy is decidedly centrist. That is definitely a swing. And here in New Zealand, um, you popped off a couple of nights ago and had a look at the Stop Co-Governance meeting. Yeah. Um, so that falls into that, and you had some really interesting insights from that. Obviously, it's limited time to sum up to our um, meeting. So, you know, I'd just summarise it by saying I think Julian Batchelor is correct. Uh, he certainly uh, satisfied me through a very thorough presentation that uh, Māori did indeed cede sovereignty. He's very thorough in it. And I knew about the uh, Koimarama Hui, which took place in 1860, I think, where, again, leaders gathered to discuss the treaty and concluded unanimously that they did indeed cede sovereignty. And that the, the thing that I hadn't been aware of were the notes from Queen Victoria via her uh, colonial secretary. They were basically saying, look, we're not going to go and uh, take land off the Māori, we will afford them the rights as British citizens and we will offer them protection within our empire if they willingly and in a fully informed way cede sovereignty. Uh, And if they don't, we'll pull out. The fact that the treaty is there and the fact that the British didn't pull out is reasonable proof that, as well as the koe marama, and, and, and there were a whole lot of things he put together about that. And and it may well be that, that co-governance is, as Marama Davidson insists, best for everyone. It may well be that, you know, New Zealand becoming an ethno-state, just like present Marxist student politicians, you know, the only reason Marxism hasn't worked is because they didn't do it and they care. Uh, they do it differently this time. Yeah, may, maybe, you know, an ethno-nationalist state will work, but don't piss on me and tell me it's raining. You know, with all the principles of the treaty thing, because he went he went right over the origins of those with a lawyer who got in David Longy's ear, Hugh Kaffer. He went to him and said, "Hey, how about uh, we we sort of just re-examine the tetiriti and uh, maybe put ourselves in 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 the mindset of those who were signing it?" And so, you know, redefined all these words, and and there was, you know, there were a few few things. I'd, I'd encourage you. To get along, if you can't uh, face uh, making your way through a few protesters, you know you can read his uh, his book. But really, just the thoroughness with which he set it out, and the fact again, the fact that that has been so completely blocked. It's been blocked by the journalism fund, and you know when you look at the way people have to approach that, they they're not allowed to to allow anything other than the idea that uh, Māori entered into a um, partnership with Queen Victoria, which never happened before, and it's not what queens do. Mm. If you want to know more about this, Paul Brennan did a fantastic interview yeah. with Julian Batchelor. About June 5th. Yeah, and you go back and have a look on our replays. So if you go to realitycheck.radio and um, click on replays, uh, you can then also, if you can't find it straight away, one of the easy ways to do it is there is actually a little, what I call a hamburger link, pop on there and you'll see podcast player. If you click on podcast player, that will actually give you 
all the interviews, all the replays are directly back into Podbean. So you'll be able to find that interview and it is well worth doing. Before we close that, though, most of the people at the meeting had had white hair. You know, they they were older. And, you know, Julian, I mean, runs through a story. You can hear it on Paul Brennan's interview. He got pushed to the edge by uh, a very aggressive series of efforts to, to take some land that he'd legitimately bought. I think in order to get ordinary Maori to understand, hey, this isn't anti-Maori. But you know something he, he was missing from it was um, my theory, which I've run through once on this show, is that the reason all this is happening is because New Zealand hasn't dealt with its history as a slave-owning country. And, you know, what we're looking here at here, I think, is a return to traditional Maori culture, which involves um, which involves the rangatira, uh, who have status determined by birth. You could draw a parallel between them and the elites. Then there's the tangata, the serfs, essentially. Yeah, they were sometimes in, in other tribes who were subservient to a, a local rangatira. Tutua is, is the ordinary people. So they're underneath the rangatira. And there's a proverb, kōtā te rangatira, kai he kōrero, kōtā te ware he mūkai. The food of chiefs is debate, the food of commoners is inattention. And it's New Zealanders' inattention that's going to get us in the crap here. It's time to start looking at the stuff. Because the attitude of these Māori elites to ordinary taxpayers I would I would contend that ordinary Māori are sort of lined up here to be the tutua. You know, if you look at the attitude of these um, iwi leaders to Pākehā tax payers, a lot of a lot of parallels with the attitudes towards the Todeka Reka or slaves. You can uh, denigrate their whakapapa due to some historical slight. You can take the fruits of their labour without reciprocity. If you have a a child with one, then that child becomes okay due to uh, having your bloodline. And, you know, the the ordinary Māori, the uh, tutua, they never questioned the rangatira about their their treatment of slaves. And that's, you know, and this is something Julian said, a lot of Māori have come to him really buying into his message. Uh, But then often they'll go to work alongside it and the threats and bullying that they encounter mm. is quite something. So again, you know, hey, I might be wrong, but we should have the discussion. Yeah. And if the discussion's blocked, that makes me very suspicious. Well, Andrea continues on saying uh, with in regards to her piece, she said, broadly, it reduces society into people versus elites, which is what we've just discussed. And acts narrative, a left wing and iwi elite are imposing an undemocratic system of power onto institutions that cannot be challenged. As we've both then just discussed, we believe it's more than institutions, it's within their own people as well. It shares key components of right-wing populism and denigrates others based on race, nationality, religion, sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, I read that. That is a classic, isn't it just? And it's a key example where you're actually accusing somebody of something that you're doing yourself. Yeah. A key example. Well, well you know, the, the other, and, and, you know, there's a lot of talk about all these rich pricks. You know, a feature of pre-European Māori society was that only the chiefs owned anything. Mm. The people underneath them didn't. And so if you're sort of wondering, how come the treaty settlements uh, trickle down makes uh, the neoliberal trickle down and look like Hooker Falls. It's traditional. Mm. I think it's really important that ordinary Māori bear in mind that one of the reasons Māori were receptive to the treaty is it gave everyone the rights of British citizenry, which meant everyone could own, they could own their stuff. And that's such a motivating part of capitalism that makes it work and it makes communism fail. And that is one of the big differences between that, really, is that the treaty did actually empower a whole large proportion of Māori that weren't currently empowered under their existing system. So that in itself is, I mean, it's a New Zealand version of the American dream, isn't it? A lot of the slaves, uh, former slaves, went and worked for Europeans. And so... There, there are very old fractures in our society and vestiges of Māori culture that we never talk about. Never talk about how being a slave-owning culture still manifests itself today. And I think that it's a major piece of the puzzle. Mm. 
She also goes on to say, this is Andrea Vance, it undercuts one of the basics of liberal democracy, the protection on the rights of minorities in favour of majoritarism. Of course, democracy also enshrines free speech, and Seymour is entitled to question the extension of co-governance from the management of rivers, lakes, forests and public services and institutions, such as Māori wards and local councils and the creation of the Māori Health Authority or Three Waters Reform. Indeed, it falls within the role of the member of the opposition. There's also a strong argument for deciding on a clear definition of co-governance. That, I think she's got it right. There has not, I haven't seen a very clear, it is a bit Well, well there's good reason for that. Because exactly, it's Zimbabwe. It is, exactly. They don't, they, but that's the whole They don't part. want to let that count. count As Willie Jackson said, oh, we want to do what they say they want to do. We just, you know, got to, you know. It's like hate speech, you know it when you say it. One of the things that got my, my sort of, nose twitchy on all of this was there was no question the issue is divisive advance says and the debate does present a risk to social cohesion but while it might be poisoning New Zealand politics it's not dominating it the most recent Ipsos issues monitoring shows that inflation cost of living crime housing health care and climate change are of the chief concerns and I thought I need to look up this Ipsos report it was fascinating this is from May of this year, which is the latest data that's available. I think it looks like they do it every six months. This is a report. It polls around 2,000 New Zealanders at what their main concerns are. I actually have done one of these polls from time to time. So number one concern, uh, inflation cost of living, currently sitting at 63%. So 63% of people are concerned around the cost of living, up from 24% in February 2021. Mm. Number two is crime, law and order, currently 40%. That's up from 16% in February 21 to the point that it did not appear in the top five. So that has every single reporting period, crime and law and order has moved up one place every single report. So that is trending upwards. So that is certainly something that we've seen. Housing, which was at number one, was dominating things through 2019 and early 2020, has now dropped down to 31%, down from 60% in February 21. So people are not worried about housing. Healthcare is in, healthcare and housing are both third equal, also on 31%. That has jumped up significantly since February 21 from 23%. However, Māori are only, their concern around healthcare is only 23%, which I found rather interesting. That's not what they tell us. Maybe that's why their health outcomes are not as good. Number five was climate change. And she's right, it is number five, but at 23%. But the economy is at 22%. And climate change has dropped. It's gone up since February 21, but it's dropped significantly post-cycling Gabriel. Imagine how much it would drop if they could actually tell the truth about it. Well, and then one of the other questions, and this is where climate change comes in, one of the other questions they ask is, what are the things that you think could be concerning in five years? People claim that they believe that climate change goes up to about 30% mm. in five years. Well, of course it does, but the it's amount of... All, ne- all news is based on climate Cl- models that always overestimate. Exactly. So when you go down the list, economy 22%, poverty and inequity 16%. So is inflation in the economy? No, is inflation's it? number one. Number one. You know, you know I, had a, I thought the other day, you know how sort of um, tax-free day... Or whatever it is, mm-hmm. is about April, isn't it? Is that, is that you know the the up until April we're working to to pay our tax. I think it's moved up to May now. Yeah. Well, you know, imagine where it would move if you framed it in terms of you know the work you have to do to get the discretionary income to pay the tax, and then imagine how much further it would work out if you worked in inflation, which is essentially the government spending and driving down the value of money. Mm-hmm. And the value of savings, like I would, I mean, you know, you look at how little discretionary in, income people have now. Mm. I would say tax-free day is kind of pretty close to New Year. Farzan, who talks with Paul and Money Talk, he, I yeah. do think he did it with Cam. Did it with Cam. He did it with Cam. I haven't and listened to the whole thing, but those were crackers, man. They're really good. And a lot of people do not understand the how money actually works. It is yeah. not as tangible. So if you... Uh, are really interested in terms of the financial aspects, I would definitely recommend listening to those uh, again on the replays. And he did that one he did with Cam was an absolute cracker. Going down the list, the economy, yeah, economy number six at 22, poverty and inequity at 16, fuel 
and education were both the same at 11%, but education is on the ascendancy. I think the next one, I wouldn't be surprised if we see education jump up a few a few um, drops. Uh, spots, tax, transport and personal debt at 7% along with drug abuse and household debt. The environment and water and unemployment are only 5%. Now, three waters reform is based on the concern for water. So they're trying to push that reform through, but it only worries 5% of New Zealanders. Yeah. What would, is it putting you on the spot too much to ask what, um, say, your top three would be? For me, yeah. I would definitely get inflation, cost of living, crime, law and order. And for me, it'd be, for me, it's a toss-up between healthcare and education. Education, yeah. Education's a worry for me only because I've got two children in the system at the moment and they're about to transition. I mean, they've gone through high school during the COVID years and it's, let's face it, COVID at high school has been yeah. a shit show. Absolute shit show. Yeah, I mean, I... What about you? Inflation, education, race relations. See, race relations down here, number 4%. Yeah, I, I think uh, that needs to come up a bit because yeah. it's a, it's it's uh... and even worse, Maori issues and overpopulation and immigration down to two percent. It's called the Ipsos if you IPSOS monitoring poll or monitoring report. You pop that in the Google, which is all I did. It will give you give you the answer. So that I just thought this entire piece by Vance was rather intriguing because again. When I looked at that report, looked at what she was saying, it falls back into that category of what they say it's about is not what it's really about. Well, you know, I've, I've been recently rereading uh, Saul Alinsky's 12 Rules for Radicals. There was a um, thing that came out, which was Saul, Saul Alinsky's um, eight uh, rules to start to create a socialist state, but I think that was um, possibly not true. I, I don't. I don't oh, okay. think he did uh, did do that. But he did say this: the organizer must become schizoid politically in order to slip into becoming a true believer. Before men can act, an issue must be polarized. Men will act when they are convinced their case is one hundred percent on the side of the angels, and that the opposition are one hundred percent on the side of the devil. He knows there can be no action until issues are polarized to this degree. And that's what we're seeing with race mm, relations. Definitely. And speaking of race relations, the one big thing that you and I picked out of the papers was uh, gangs. There was yeah. a lot of stuff on gangs all across the week, partially because National had announced uh, their gang policy, which we covered, I think, was it last week or the week before? I personally think National missed the mark. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked about this a fair bit. And a lot of the reason why I believe that they've missed the mark, as I say, is you need to look at any policy that potentially could be enacted in law and give it what I call the barn door treatment. So what then happens if the barn door were to swing back the other way? And that's the concern with uh, National's policy, is National's policy is very reliant on the definition of the word gang because yeah. everything that they've put in place in terms of tackling gangs if they were to then decide that gang meant anybody that disagrees with them in governance yep. is disruptive to social fabric and cohesion, well, once you apply that definition, it then means that that is becoming very much back into a Marxist state. National's looking very purple and not very yeah, I mean, my, my thing with it, and I've, I've said this in a variety of different ways, is you've got to understand the people who are involved in it and you've got to look at them through a lens of compassion that's longer term. It can't be weak compassion, but, I mean, I was talking with a um, mongrel mob sergeant in arms uh, at one point. I think I gave him a book called The Tattooed Face. I was calling him to do that, and we had a chat, and he was talking about being a kid in his house, you know, once were warriors kind of fights. Mm. He said, oh, yeah, and I was walking around, and, oh, so that's how you kick someone. Oh, so that's how you break a bottle on someone's head. He came down the next morning and he said, oh, and there's all these cops in the house and one of them pointed a gun at me and I said, oh, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I'm just wanting to go to school. And he went off to school and he came back and uh, he wondered where, where his brother was. These were, these were early mob members, um, incredibly strong men. He said, oh, where's the meat, mum? And which was his brother's nickname. And she said, oh, 
the, the meat's in jail, son. And I said, what's jail? And she said, oh, you'll find out. So you've got to understand. And he was repentant. You know, he, he understood, got out of it. He's still never really fully out of it, but he, he was big and tough enough not to get a beating because he was very, very big and tough. You, you can talk to these kids who are on, on that path. I, I remember going again with uh, Genesis Portini. We went to see um, a program that Marcus and Owen Lloyd had, had, uh, were running at Whatatutu and just in, in land, and they'd taken these kids, and they'd basically, yeah, it was, it was a Māori program that they'd designed and they never got funding for it. They couldn't get funding for it. But it was for, for boys. And it was basically the theme was, you know, take the gutter out of the man. Mm. And uh, and so these kids had been tramping. They'd been learning to do stuff. And um, we had this thing we were talking to. I was talking to them after the weekend paper at the time. I said, you know, did, did you enjoy it? And and they said, yeah, yeah, it was awesome. You know, do you think it's going to keep you out of trouble? He said, oh, you know, I'll be going back and I know I'll be drinking. I know I'll be getting into fights. It's just the environment. I said, would you stay here for a year if it were possible to do so? And they all said yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's that thing of boot camps, boot camps. But it's such a bad word because it just it embodies just breaking people down and just being too hard with them. That's all these kids have known. Yeah. There is one of the things I think is missing with all of these, as you said, is actually allowing particularly young Māori, um, they've, they've lost that connection back with their haku and back with their iwi. Yep. And I think that connection, not these boot camps, but take take them back to marae, have them, take them back to the land, take them back to their ancestors, and actually have that instilled in them, not what they're seeing on social media, not what they're seeing with going out in endless parties, um, not what they're seeing with the truancy um, and the drugs and all the rest I'd of it. I'd say also a bit more hikoi, a bit more gardening, a bit more fishing, a bit more carving, weaving, a bit less haka. You know, it's not something they need to practice, the looking angry and aggressive. Oh, you know, that's my own uh, personal view. But, you know, there was an article by Harry Tam and Joanna Wilkinson. Joanna Wilkinson works for research and H2R, research and consulting with a focus on marginalised communities. And, and I thought, oh, here we go. I actually found very little to disagree with what she said, particularly many of these estate care survivors. Yeah, she's saying 80 to 90% of mongrel mob and black power gang whanau have been in state care. That's, the, you know, and whenever you talk to these guys, you can see the hurt still when they talk about that. And they talk about when they went off the path, when they felt marginalised by the fact that they were always going to carry that stigma with them. And she said, instead, the National Party's approach places an overemphasis on imprisonment, neglects evidence-based approaches about rehabilitation and reintegration, and overwhelmingly relies on the national gang list, the credibility of which has been called into question numerous times. And crucially, their approach disproportionately impacts already marginalised communities. Yeah, probably true. Saying they've got you know, H2R research, got 50 years combined experience working with gangs and hard-to-reach Māori communities. There is a place for that kind of what's easy to make political capital on by characterising it as, as soft mm. on gangs approach. But you've got to do both. Yeah. The issue I had with this, I mean, there was a lot, I don't agree with national's policy on games. I don't. I think it's it's the wrong policy. What I do have an issue with this is that if we were talking about uh, wayward Boy Scouts as being a gang, well, then that is something entirely different. You've still got to remember that the core of the element of this gang is deeply criminal. In yeah. order to get a patch, you have to do something pretty criminal yeah. in order to earn that patch. So they do stay here. We then support these communities to implement these initiatives so they can take ownership of their own transformation. This approach inspires and provides incentives the other communities. Now, that, where is the evidence of this? So it's like the money that went to the drug program in Hawke's Bay that got... Yeah. Where are the outcomes? Mm. There was no discussion in this article. If all of if you've got 50 years experience and you've done this, where are the outcomes? I wanted to hear about outcomes, Joanna. Yeah. Again, if if National really wanted to do something worthwhile in the space that was still, you know, could be characterized as a crackdown on yinks to get New Zealand back on track, they could really stiffen up penalties for any intimidation of someone leaving a gang, make it real easy to leave a gang. 
It's all like you're yeah. getting big trouble if you try. But if you leave the gang, here's what you got to do. You got to get drug free, and you know it would be worth paying someone a fair amount of money to to get on that way. And you got to have in that uh, cycle of contemplation when someone's ready to go. And you know, I've I've spoken to gang members about that. You know, they sort of, you know, were all for it, and then they worked out that their bros who were coming to stay were molesting their kids. Mm. You know, and at that point, they realised it was bullshit, but they still had this feeling that society was against them, so they kind of had nowhere to go. Yeah, you got to have a hey, if you want to clean up your act, if you're understanding that you're doing terrible harm, which is creating some very bad karma for you. Here's the path out. Yeah. And it's got to be in jails too. Yeah. It's like you can be in some bullshit gang in jail, making everyone's life a misery, or you can renounce it and have mm. a better time. We still have to work hard. Yeah. And this is, I think, where the church actually comes in yep. because a number of them, that is where Norm McLean Norm Norm yep. and Gisborne, he's done a lot of work, I know, in this space. And that is where the churches do come up. Destiny's church has done a, work, a lot of work in this space. So, but you've got to give them a parallel structure. You've got to give them a way out. It's the political football that really annoys me. Claire Trevitt, she also covered this. And this is where, again, Harry Tam, and for those that don't know, Harry Tam's, uh, well, it says here is a mongrel mob spokesman. I think Harry is a patched member of the yeah. mob. Uh, there's been criticism coming out because, of course, he's gone out on social media and he's given an open endorsement for Labour and the Greens. And he's citing here uh, mob spokesman Harry Tam. It was for gang members to vote strategically by supporting Labour candidates in marginal seats, giving the Green Party the party vote so Labour will have a governing partner. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, those are saying we don't want to make gangs a political football, but when the gangs weighed in themselves and put themselves yeah. on the playing field, well... You never want to romanticise these guys because they do things that are so ugly that you just you wouldn't want to be able to to get a hold of. There are a lot of families who are just gang families, and you know that's who they are. Again, education, but yeah, I mean there, there was uh, Ingrid Leary stumbled upon a mongrel mob election meeting in Dunedin. You know, if a politician goes and talks to gang members, I mean it's different if they say I vote for these guys, but. Well, it's a bit like Christopher Luxon saying he wouldn't go and talk to the protesters. Mm. Why not? If he did talk to gangs more, he wouldn't be talking so much crap because he'd, he'd have a better understanding. And and it drives me crazy because it's not like he's missing out on the gangs' votes by doing that. He's missing out on middle New Zealand votes, the votes of middle New Zealand who just listen to him and think, man, you're so out of touch. Mm. Mm. You're so out of touch. You, you could use a little humility with all this. Yeah, because there are real kids really suffering, and for me, you know, if you knew a kid was in a house fire, you'd run, you know, ten miles over gravel and bare feet to get them out. It's tough going to sleep in Gisborne, knowing that within a two-kilometer radius of you, you've got kids just having an awful time. Not just in gang houses, not just mm. in, you know, we sort of got the government always saying, "Oh, well, we'll take care of this." Government growing between us like a cancer. We need to talk to each other more. Moving into a completely different topic now, this was a piece that both you and I pulled out. I read it this morning, and it's from the Sunday Star Times. Uh, it's in the focus section, and the title is History in Brackets Always Repeats. It's from uh, Kevin Norkey. How often do we hear that we live in highly divisive times. Kevin discovers that conspiracies, racism, and parliamentary occupations are simply old themes dusted off and recycled. Wasn't it Mark Twain that once said that history never repeats, but it often rhymes? Yeah, I think so, although Mark Twain's quotes are notoriously made, made up by other people. I mean, this would have been a great opportunity uh, for him to talk about my slavery theory, but he doesn't. <laughs> He doesn't. It starts with due deference to split ends. They got it wrong. Human nature being what it is. History always repeats just with new villains, issues and conspiracy theories. Victoria University of Wellington historian Dr. Stephen Loveridge of the Stout Research Centre for New Zealand Studies in his new book, Secret History, State Surveillance in New Zealand, 1900 to 1956, written with Richard S. Hill, will show there's nothing new under the sun. Reading Secret History, some of the more recent happenings around COVID seem weirdly familiar. When the government tried to impose conscription during World War I, there was resistance and deliberate avoidance. When it battled to combat the Great Depression, 
desperate protesters occupied the grounds surrounding Parliament, as anti-mandate protesters did in 2022. Just as COVID is seen as the invention aimed at imposing state control, in the 1930s, many saw worldwide economic collapse as a global lie by governments used to gain control of the masses. Loveridge sees parallels between COVID and World War I conscription too. In both cases, the public were forced to make sacrifices for their country for the sake of others. A team of 5 million in 2020 and one of just over a million going to World War I. Yeah. And, you know, then he just absolutely jumps the shark. The shirkers and conscientious objectors of World War I played a similar role to the anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists of 2021 as legitimate targets for community ire. Conscription was introduced in mid-1960s with all men aged 20 to 45 registered unless they were a non-British resident. In the COVID era, vaccine passports similarly sought to regulate movements and give assurance that the situation was being handled. It's uh, drawing a pretty long bow, I would have thought. An exceptionally long bow, because what I couldn't get over is when he's drawing that parallel between, you know, this is the whole greater good argument, isn't mm. it? You're doing this for the greater good. That's just it. You, I looked at this and I thought, well, what are you saying? I mean, if you're saying that there are parallels between COVID and the greater good, so those that sacrificed during COVID, so they sacrifice. So what was that sacrifice? Was the sacrifice the lockdowns and the personal freedoms? Was the sacrifice getting vaccinated under the vaccine mandates? And if your argument is it's the vaccinations under the vaccine mandates, well, then are those who have sacrificed themselves and were harmed, maimed, and died due to those mandates, you know what are a, they going to be celebrated you know as skillably? Yeah. You know what a better parallel is to draw here? Well, the reason that they kept World War I going even when it had just been moving backwards and forth and just a river of gore, is that no leaders wanted to admit that they weren't going to win and they didn't want to stop it because there'd been so much sacrifice and it was all for nothing. Mm. And so that's, you know, if you really want to draw a parallel, there it is, Stephen Loveridge could draw a parallel with World War One and climate change. You know, we sent ill-equipped troops over as a sacrifice to ensure continued trade, much in the same way as we're sacrificing our um, primary sector and economy, as I said, possibly $70 billion this decade, mm. ostensibly to maintain um, trade links, but really all for nothing. Just a quixotic waste of resource Yeah, that's not going to achieve anything but misery. It goes on to say so both. Dark I did take it. In both cases, there was dissident. Uh, there was a dissident element that denounced the rules as illegitimate, a breach of civil liberties, or a case of government overreach. Yeah, think. And in both cases, dissidents were met with arguments that their liberties came with social responsibilities, and they were being irresponsible in the face of real danger. Really, real danger. Yeah. Let's not skin that onion, shall we? Given his time investigating state surveillance, there was a gentle tugging towards the rabbit hole. Loveridge laughs, then offers rabbit fighting tools, mental maximatosis, if you will. In some cases, you ask, how could anyone believe this? In others, I see highly flawed answers to serious questions about what's happening in the world and why. The most interesting ones are cases where you see three blind men feeling the elephant and then you go, okay, well, you've got part of it, but not all of it. You're giving an element far too much explanatory power. It helps to step outside yourself. You try to see what other people are attempting and what they're failing to do. Then you ask yourself if you're doing the same thing in your own time and realise that if you look at the past, there's nothing new here. These things keep playing out in various ways. I just looked at this and I thought, you know what, let's go along with that and let's apply that to the march of Marxism in the 20th century and see what we get ourselves. Yeah. Again, there's this, the fact that there's not the opposing argument. Like, like this guy couldn't say the things I've said and be published in the paper. Mm. Even though, as I said, I think they're a better fit for his argument. Yeah. A far better fit. And, I mean, you know, then you've got, you know, talking about the Great Depression, the government was trying to refute disinformation about such random things as the establishment of the Reserve Bank, which was seen by conspiratorial anti-Semites 
as the culmination of the vast banker's plot to turn New Zealand into a communist slave state. It's taken a while, but... They're getting there. And they always use seen by conspiratorial. As con- someone who's conspiring is conspiratorial. Someone who's pointing out, hey, you guys are getting together and doing secret things and um, squashing any discussion. They're not conspiratorial. They're pointing out conspiratorial behaviour. And, and they always get that wrong. So the other thing that I find rather interesting about this, because he keeps drawing this parallel back to uh, the, era, the particularly the time uh, World War One and the time in between the World Wars and the Great Depression. And if you take his, extend his theory and the fact that history does always repeat, we are now looking down the barrel of a the next Great Depression economically, even though there are some economists out there that like to try and convince us that inflation is now panned out. Just and, print our way out of and, this. Yeah, and, and it's actually, it's not really as bad as you might think. Yeah, give me a tiny home, eat your bugs. You know. <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. If, if we get a handle on climate change, it will fix everything. We just have to print a whole lot of money and then you borrow it using your children's ability to pay tax in the future as, as uh, collateral. And then we'll send it overseas to nuclear armed developing nations via one of the most corrupt um, market financial markets in the world to have zero effect on reducing a trace gas that's 0.04 of the atmosphere and uh, this is vital to all life. Mm. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, perfectly, perfectly. So if you actually look at it down the barrel of that, well, yeah, actually, I think there will be a financial shock. And the interesting thing, of course, with that is that the conditions at the end of the Great Depression created the recipe for what was uh, the rise of fascism across Europe and then into the Second World War. Mm. That is something that we have to be very mindful of. I mean, are those ingredients now currently being set with the, the war going on in Europe? I don't know. What I do agree with is, yes, history does always repeat, but I just find it really interesting Mm. at the lens that he's looked at it in. If we go back to our matrix analogy at the beginning, uh, we're looking at this sitting on the Nebuchadnezzar outside of the matrix going, you know, this is where this is going. He's sitting in there in the restaurant writing his notes and writing a story while he's eating his imaginary steak. That's what I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's stuff like the use of fluoride in public drinking water as as an as an, a, an example of wrong thing. And I remember old John Ansell asked uh, Christopher Luxon at a meeting, if you could prove to your own satisfaction that fluoride in the drinking water lowered the intelligence of young people, uh, that there were no principles of the treaty involving a partnership, that there wasn't significant anthropogenic climate change. Etc. There's one more point he made. If you could establish those things to your satisfaction, would you change your policies? And Christopher Luxon just said, no. Mm. And, and for me, that was very, very telling because it's the wrong answer. Mm. If the facts change, you've got to change your mind. Yeah. And you've got to be open to it. And, and as I've always said, you know, I'm not arguing that what I think is absolutely correct. Well, obviously, I think it. Uh, I, I think it is, but um, and I'm doing my best that it is. I'm arguing, hey, we've got to have the discussion, and if the discussion is getting closed down, we're in big trouble, mm. and we've got to start it up. Mm. And it's not hateful; it's just how it is. I thought it was a, an interesting article. I think the book will be interesting. I don't necessarily agree with the, how they drew the conclusions, but a lot of the parallels there I thought were actually really, really fascinating. Did you? Yeah, I just, I did. I found it fascinating. I found it slightly sad and disturbing at the same time. But but it's just so amazing how you can both be, it's like going into an art gallery, isn't it? And looking at a painting. And you can both be looking at exactly the same painting on the wall and what one person perceives and what another person perceives are completely different. And this to me is an example of that. Yeah, I mean, that's what it always uh, gives me the shits about student politicians and, and young politicians. I think back to being in my early 20s, and I just think, no, no, <laughs> you're, you're no. Right. Have you got anything else you want to cover? I've got one nice little bit. We've got so much paper that we haven't gotten to, but I can't believe I'm looking at the time and time's running away on us. And I do, we've had some feedback, Martin. 
Oh, have we? Let's we have, have that. Some, let's have some feedback. Right, feedback, feedback from the inbox. Hi, Marie. Heard from a working registered nurse yesterday, and the health department found out about how to fund RNs back who had lost their registrations, like myself. There's tons of RNs out there who whose registrations have expired, and the re-registration is currently a six-month course. Watch the space. So that will be really. I know a lot did let them lapse. This was uh, actually a correction too from Michelle. Uh, Michelle, I did say that anaesthetic techs, to my knowledge, weren't trained in New Zealand. Uh, they have been now are being trained in New Zealand. Right. So thanks, Michelle, for letting me know it's that. Still true that they're very antisocial. Again, you said that, not I. I do know from very social anaesthetic techs. Uh, I was trained here, but mandated out um, because they didn't need me. I know, Michelle, that is insane, right? I mean, how many surgeries have been cancelled in this country because of an anaesthetic tech shortage? It's just, it's mind-blowing. Uh, Diane said, Jerry Brownlee was recently asked at a national meeting why the unvaxxed nurses aren't being re-employed. He said it, he wasn't aware they weren't allowed back. He said, that's all been dropped. Hmm. then why is the health industry still mandating, i.e. polytech hospitals, and if the government don't require it? I know the Nursing Association won't allow unvaxxed back and, what, and on what grounds. And you're right, and there's a number of uh, businesses that are still uh, requiring a vaccine mandate. So that all they've done is deferred the responsibility of the mandate onto All the that we're doing is keeping World War One going because we don't want to admit that it was crap. And we knew it was crap even when we were starting out because they knew what they knew it didn't stop transmission. They knew it didn't stop infection. No, exactly. So they've got to keep pushing it because they don't want to say, you know what? I was wrong about that. Oh, definitely. Again, from the text machine, I reckon Pfizer made it contractual that New Zealand get rid of all natural products. Who knows what power they have over us now? Oh, you'll like this one, Marty. This one's Ooh. right up your alley. Uh, again, from the text machine, the Rockefeller Foundation is investigating $20 million into researching the medical use of food, which is where I think the therapeutic goods bill comes from. Have right. you? Yes, because I know that you... Yeah, well, yeah. where does it come from? Exactly. Where's the urgency for it? Because you notice it didn't even appear on uh, the list of concerns. It didn't even no, make 1%, did it? did not even make 1%. So a huge thank you for all of that feedback. If you want to send us feedback, uh, inbox at realitycheck.radio is the email. 2057 is the text number. And it's great because we don't always get it right. And uh, sometimes our information is out of date. And so if you've got, or if you've got an opposing uh, point of view, send that along as well. Hey, I do have one little good news story, though, to finish oh. off with. I know. First ever female won Young Palmer of the Year. Yeah, I saw that. What oh, a nice, what a pleasant lady she was, too. She was. Emma Paul from the Waikato Bay of Plenty Contestant was crowned champion of Warb in Timaru a couple of nights ago, left it absolutely buzzing in the 55th edition of the awards. Uh, she's totally overwhelmed. She had to go through, all the finalists had to go through three days of tough competition, and she came out on top. Alongside the title and the trophy and the famous cloak of knowledge, Paul also received $90,000 in prizes. I'm really thrilled for Emma, the most prestigious farming award in the country, says Chief Executive Linda Coppersmith. So congratulations. Congratulations, um, Emma. To Emma. I just thought that was very good news and very well-deserved. Apparently she... Uh, she, you know, absolute kicks and butt against the boys. So Cousin managing the family uh, farm. Wouldn't be surprised if she took out uh, that one day. She's mm. into it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been fun. Yeah, Doing great. It yes. Yeah. So we'll be on TV before we know it, maybe. Oh, yeah, no, this is definitely my mug's not made for the screen, but there you go. Let me sort that out. <laughs> Hey, don't disappear. Woke word of the week is still coming here on Counterculture. And again, if you have any feedback you want to send us, 2057 is the text number. Have a great week, everyone. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah.